I'm uh, especially uh, thankful for uh, today because we have the tremendous privilege of having Johnny Ardo with us. And so those of you that, um, that were here last year, Johnny preached just, uh, I think, before Easter. And so he's back with us. Johnny is uh, he's a former student of mine. Um, he was a former basketball player of mine. Um, he's still a current Laker fan like I am. And Johnny, it's hard to be up here, man, because everyone hates on the Lakers. So I'm thankful that you're here with, see, see? <laughs> so even though we're not in the playoffs, we still have 17 championships. So it's hard to, to compete with that. Yeah. But Johnny, he, uh, he serves as the dean um, of campus life there at the Masters University, which is our alma mater. Uh, he leads a Bible study at Grace Community Church. He was the camp director at Hume Lake Christian Camps, and he'll still be speaking there this summer. But one of the things that I'm most excited about what Johnny is doing, and, and some of you have told me that you've benefited from his ministry, is he's got a podcast called Dial In. And on uh, that podcast, he has a, just one series that's called Big Questions and Biblical Answers, where he's interviewed John MacArthur and Paul Washer and Paul Twist. We know Paul. He has been on there. Kosti Hinn, Eric Tonis, who's preached in this pulpit. And what I just love is that Johnny is producing, almost mass-producing, good quality biblical resources. And Johnny, I think I told you last year when you were here that um, this generation and the generations to come desperately need to hear your voice because still, man, you have such a passion for the Lord, a love for the church, and when you speak, man, it's just contagious. So uh, my, my time with him just in the short time that he's been here from last night to this morning, every conversation um, is just so enriching to my soul. And to have Katie here and now the sweet little Lily, they got a six-month-old baby, precious girl. Um, we just love your family. We're grateful for your ministry. And uh, we're super excited to have you come and open the word for us. So why don't you come and bless us, brother? Well, hey, good morning. I'm a yeller. Um, hey, it is just a joy to be here. I'm honored to be here. I, I just am thankful for my friendship with Dominic over many years. I think I met Dominic the first day of ninth grade. At that point, I was five foot four. My nickname was Muggsy. And uh, I've just been thankful for years of friendship. So grateful him and Jess are here now. And I count it a privilege to be able to open up the word of God with you today. Dom mentioned it, but my wife Katie's here. Uh, we've been married the last few years and we have a baby named Lily who's just the best. Um, can I do this? Can I pray once more that God would bless our time in the Word of God? And I say this often to students, but I think it's applicable here. The reason I pray before I teach is not as a necessary transition from one thing to another. It's because I always want to be mindful that when we look at the Word of God, I am absolutely dependent upon the Spirit of God for His Word to have any lasting effect upon our life. And you are as well. And for me to make any sense, we need God's word and God's spirit. And so I want to ask him that he would bless his, this time as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me pray. Lord, I love you. And I'm so thankful you love me and you love us. And God, I'm thankful for your word today that is living and active and that it's sharp, Lord. It's able to discern our thoughts and our motives. It's able to point out even the sin in our life. It's the mirror by which we even recognize who we are in light of the character of God. 
Lord, we need you today, and we pray with the psalmist, open my eyes, O Lord, that I may behold the wonderful things that are within your word. God, there are many wonderful things, and the difficulty for me is not figuring out, is there something wonderful here? But there's so much wonderful truth within the scripture, so I pray that I would be a good steward of your word and a good steward of the time allotted, that we would walk away with here, or from here, with the necessary perspective that is provided from your word, and would it change us, God. Would you change us through your word and by your spirit and amongst your people for your glory? Thank you for this church. Would you continue to grow, Lord, their influence and impact in this Monterey Bay area? And would you be glorified by the teaching and fellowship and worship that is presented here? We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, and it's found within a section of scripture that is called wisdom literature. And the main thrust of wisdom literature is to teach us how we relate to God and how we relate to others. It's five books in the Old Testament, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. It teaches us how we relate to God, how we respond to God, how we can worship God, how we even involve ourselves and relate to one another. But we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes, which is written by King Solomon. Now, if you've grown up in the church, uh, you have some degree of familiarity with King Solomon. And even if you have not, you likely know who he is because Solomon is famous for being one of the most uh, wise, wealthy, and powerful men in history. I'll give you a little bit of a recap, and then we'll jump in. In 1 Kings 3, God says, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. What do you want? And he asks for what? Wisdom. And because he doesn't ask for wealth or power, God says, I'll also give you those. So Solomon has everything you could ever want, all the power that wealth affords and all the women he desires. But in Ecclesiastes, he is empty and he's grasping for meaning in a world of futility and frustration. Three things about Solomon, I've already stated some of them. He has many women in his life. How many? Well, 1 Kings 11 says that Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines. What's your name again, girl? I'm Teresa. How do I know you? We're married, Solomon. That's his life. He's married to so many women. He doesn't even know how to detail them. He has no want for shape, personality, ethnicity. He has zero unfulfilled fantasies. And this is Solomon. And he's going to look at all of his women and he's going to evaluate life under the sun. He's going to say, I'm empty. And everything is striving after the wind. And that's a key word throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But not only does he have a lot of women, he has a lot of wisdom. I love this detailing Solomon's wisdom. In 2 Kings 4.30, it says, Solomon had more wisdom than all of the people of Egypt. Now, if you currently take out your phone and type in on Google, how did the E and then stop with a blinking cursor after the letter E, what pre-populates on Google search is how did the Egyptians build the pyramids? Because it's an anomaly to every single person. How did they do that without the technology that we currently have today? Man, they, sh- they assuredly must have been wise. They were skilled. They were engineers. How did they do it? How did they haul those massive slabs of stone? They're geniuses. And then in a verse that you read over, Solomon's wisdom was greater than all of the wisdom than all of Egypt. But not only does he have a lot of wisdom, he's got a lot of money. He's the wealthiest man in human history, arguably. But his money doesn't satisfy. The pursuit of money itself is exhilarating, 
But once you have it all, you feel like you have nothing at all. Wealth cannot provide what it takes away from those who think it will satisfy. When the richest man in the world at the time and one of the wealthiest men in history, John Rockefeller, was asked, how much money is enough money, John? His answer was just a little bit more. Solomon always wants more. And because of that, he never has enough. But what's on Solomon's mind throughout Ecclesiastes, it's not just his wealth, it's not his wisdom, it's not his women. What's on his mind throughout the book of Ecclesiastes predominantly is something else entirely. Solomon is wrestling with the reality of his looming death. Because no matter how high he ascends in power, he will ultimately and inevitably descend six feet under like every single person. And he's recognizing that no matter how powerful or famous or wealthy I become, there is a common denominator between me and one of my servants. Death is our destiny. And this is one of the major themes throughout his reflections in Ecclesiastes. And in an unconventional way today, I want to look at the living word of God and see how God's living word teaches us about death. Because Solomon says wisdom is found here. And the wisest man who ever lived in the Old Testament, at least outside of, you know, outside of the spectrum of what we have in scripture, the wisest man who ever lived says, pull up a seat. I want to tell you my reflections on life. You can ride shotgun. Let's go on a drive. And he's going to talk to us about three realities regarding death. And I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I'll be predominantly in chapter 7 and 9. In wisdom literature, it's not so much like the New Testament where you just go verse by verse because there's different thoughts, but Solomon has them underneath one general umbrella. Three realities regarding death I want to look at, and then we'll look at how Solomon tells us to live in light of those realities. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. In 7.1, Solomon says, a good name is better than a good ointment. We'll pause there for just a second. What does he mean that a good name is better than a good ointment? Okay, think with me. Names in the Bible are not just titles, okay? So this morning when you had the scripture read, we're singing, oh, Yahweh, you're great, because God's name is not God. We talked about this actually last time I preached here. God's name is not God. God's name is Yahweh or El Shaddai, the Lord is Almighty, or Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. Because names depict more than just the title of a person. It details the character of the person. And so when we're talking about God in the Bible, his, his names are, are wrapped up in his character and vice versa. And Solomon is saying a good name who you are is more precious than a good ointment. Now, what's the deal with oil and ointment? Uh, this is, he's getting at something. Ointment in the Old Testament was precious. Remember, that's why Judas is upset in Mary Magdalene because she anoints Jesus with a precious nard. And he says, why are you doing that? That could have been sold for much money. How much money? A year's wages. So Solomon is saying at the, at the beginning of chapter seven, at the end of the day, you can have wealth, and all the external things that signify youth, sex, and power. You could smell good, have white teeth, a good body, but Solomon says beauty is vain, it's fleeting, but do you know what lasts? A good reputation. Character is more precious than jewels. But he's going to immediately transition from this idea of who you are to a, a reality in the second half of verse one. He says, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. 
I became a dad last year. And maybe you're thinking, how could the day of death be better than the day of birth? I'm looking at Lily. She's just waking up from a nap. The day of birth is so full of happiness and joy. I remember when the the nurse first put that baby in my arms and looking down at Lily, and I'm just going, she's going to be a hooper. She's going to be a baller. And, you know, like, what am I going to do with Lily? Oh, imagine the memories that I'll have with Lily. Man, one day, Lord willing, she'll get married and make me a grandpa. But death is not full of happiness, right? It's full of sorrow and full of tears. So how could death possibly be better than life? How could the day of death be better than the day of birth? And maybe if you've grown up in the church, you're thinking, well, he's thinking about Philippians 3. Paul says to die is gain. But Solomon has already told us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that the only thing he knows for sure that's following death is judgment. So he's not anticipating some sort of heavenly home. So what does he mean? This is the inspired word of God. That's not just inspired. Timothy says it's profitable. So this is profitable for your life today. If you miss this, you miss a key component of the scripture. How could the day of death be better than the day of birth? One pastor says, well, the day of death is about fulfillment and the day of birth is about potential and all the you know, hopes and dreams. But I think what Solomon is getting after, he wants you to understand something. The day of death is better than the day of birth for one main reason. First reality regarding death. Number one, death is a great teacher. Death is a great teacher. Death is an active evangelist to you that proclaims to you your own mortality. He's not saying death is better than life because it's not, but he is detailing for us that when we stare at the coffin and the absence of a life once lived, our own life comes into focus. I'll explain this more, but I wanna go to verse two with you. He says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting because that is the end of every single man. Now pause here. Feasting represents in the Bible, the ultimate form of a party, which would be weddings. Now, weddings are not superficial. They are God-ordained and God-honoring, but they don't bring life into focus. Here's what Solomon is saying. Death is better than birth. Mourning is better than feasting because coffins preach the strongest sermons. No one leaves a comedy and considers the brevity of life and the inevitability of their own death. But Solomon knows something and he looks us in the eye He says, take a seat. And he pulls up to a stop sign. He says, every single funeral you anticipate is a foreshadowing of your own. Every single time you look at a a casket, you need to think to yourself, one day that will be me. Every memorial service you attend is a wake-up call. They tell us about the way life actually is, not the makeup, let's pretend fantasy world, but the way that life actually is. Solomon says, walk past the graveyard. And now look at the dates on the tombstones and find that some share the same birth year as you. Be pricked by the reminder of your looming death. And he he says, guess what? Death is not your enemy. Death is your friend. Death is a mentor. Do you know why? Because only when you contemplate the reality of your death can you actually know how to live. So death is better than birth, Solomon says, because it's a better teacher. At the end of verse 2, Solomon says, and the living will take it, heart. I love that. What does that mean? He says, meaning that wise people, do you want to be wise? Wise people don't live delusionally. They don't live in denial of their death. They live with this mindset. Maybe in 30 years or maybe in 30 minutes, I will meet my maker 
And they asked himself this question, what will the dash in between my birth year and death year stand for? That's all we are. A verse, a memory, loving father, caring husband, this year, dash, this year. In verse four, he says, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. But not the fool. The fool checks his watch and checks his phone at a funeral. Can't wait to get out. He's foolish because he's neglecting a life of thoughtfulness and depth. But one author says, death invites you to become a person of depth. And living a good life is dependent on living in light of your death. So Solomon is saying this. I've been to a lot of parties. And if, if I had more time and more weeks, we could look at chapters one and two. Solomon threw ragers for 25,000 people a night for 10 plus years. You can read the provisions that were necessary for one of his parties. And Solomon says, listen, I know how to party. He says, the day of mourning is better than the day of feasting. I've never walked away from one party that's provided me with the perspective that a good day of mourning has. He says, it's better for you to pour yourself a thermos of coffee and walk in a graveyard than to booze it up with a red solo cup because perspective is provided amongst those who are dying he says, death is a great teacher because it not only provides us about our looming death, but it also makes us look at the other anomalies in life. I want to look at one thing with you in verse 10 before we move on, because I think it's fitting for our current time. He says, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Solomon says, have you recently looked at the news on your phone or television and had to look away? Have you ever shook your head and mumbled to yourself, things just aren't like they used to be? Why is the world so bad? Can you imagine raising kids in this environment? Solomon says, the word of God says, do not say why is it that the former days were better than these? Solomon pulls up to a stop sign and says, your mind is not aligned with wisdom if you think this way. Maybe think that the past was better than the present when the prevailing winds of contemporary thought were at the backs of Christians. But he says, was God more present there? Is he no longer in control? Is his purpose suppressed? To ask the question is unwise because it neglects the reality of God's providence. We'll talk about this more, but I wanna move on with you. What's the problem with the world? Why is death a great teacher and why is it a certain reality? Look down at verse 20 of chapter seven. He says, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. That first word in verse 20 is indeed, means that this is without a shadow of a doubt, no exaggeration, this isn't hyperbole, indeed, assuredly, there is not a righteous man on earth who never sins. Can you disagree with this? I sit on planes quite often, and whenever someone tells me they're an atheist, the first question I always ask them is, what are you guilty about? because every single person has an innate understanding of guilt. And so we don't need to argue with the text, we just confess and express its reality. There is not a righteous person on the planet. Death teaches us that there is a problem with the world, right? This isn't the way it should be. We'll talk about this more. Death teaches us that there is a problem, and we might ask the question, what's the problem with the world? Ecclesiastes chapter seven says, the problem with the world is us. Solomon turns to what has been revealed 
drawing evidently from Genesis 1 through 3, Babylonian theodicy used to claim that when there was a problem with the world or the sin in the world was that the gods made men evil and all the lies and all the evil and all the corruption was because the deities were forcing this upon mankind. And so it was their fate and that all that was evil in the world was the fate of mankind because the gods had implemented evil in such a way where mankind had no choice. But the scripture says, no, it is not our fate that the world is evil. It is our fault because we brought this upon ourselves. And the problem with the world is us. He said, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good. Assuredly, Paul will draw on this later on in Romans 3. There is not one righteous, not even. How many? One. Solomon says in verse 29, we'll look down. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. God did not make a world of sin and death. He made a a world of beauty and of goodness. So we know that this reign of death, this great teacher that's death, is not how God created it to be. Death is not good. Number two here, death is a great evil. So number one, death is a great teacher. Number two, death is a great evil. And I'll go quickly on this one. I want to look with you at chapter nine. He's going to keep on saying the same thing for the most part. But look at chapter nine, verses two and three. He says, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. He's saying there is one fate for every single person. Verse three, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all man. Solomon is saying, Death bats 1,000%. It is undefeated. He's already told us this in chapter seven, that death is a certain reality, but now he's going to say it is evil. It wasn't meant to be this way. God's intention when he created the world and man in his image was not for them to die. He created them to be with him and for him and to him for all eternity. But Solomon is saying, listen, now that sin and death cohabitate in this world, Death is our destiny. God is the one, Psalm 90, that turns man back into the dust because there is now a curse on this earth. This is a helpful reminder from Solomon because sometimes we live in a world where people try to beautify what death is. It's a transition from one life into another. He slipped off into eternal rest. He's now resting in peace. He's in a better place. Death, the author of Ecclesiastes says, is a great evil. It's not beautiful. It's horrible. Forrest Gump says, dying is just a part of living. The word of God says, death is a great, great evil. This is an unsentimental reality check. Death is a curse for moral rebellion. He continues in verse four. He says, for whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. He's saying death is so ugly that even a dog, the most rejected and neglected, are superior and and more advantageous than a lion who is the most prestigious and powerful who are now dead. My friend Harry explains this by saying, imagine a man, think with me, his name is Steve. He's 21 years old. He makes minimum wage selling Apple iPhones at Best Buy, okay? Steve from Best Buy 
is better off than the Steve who invented the iPhone that Steve at Best Buy is selling. Why? Because Steve at Best Buy is still alive. Steve Jobs can't do anything because Steve Jobs is dead. Under the sun, once you're dead, you have no more opportunity, no more family, no more influence, no mulligans, no redo, no redos. You're done. You're done. And so Solomon is saying a dead dog or a dead lion is worse off than a living dog. I think sometimes we're so quick to view death through the lens of a Christian perspective that we no longer see the moral dimension of it. Death is evil. It's a curse. Sometimes if you've been to a funeral recently in a Christian setting, sometimes we say things like, oh, death, where is your sting? If you've had a family member die, especially prematurely, and someone says, oh, death, where's your sting? You just say, it's right here. It's a reality, right? You don't say that to someone who's grieving. Biblically speaking, death is a sting. Yes, ours is the victory in Christ, and one day we'll be with him for all of eternity. But when someone dies, our confidence in Christ doesn't remove the wound of the life once lived, does it? And Solomon says, death is a great evil. But not only is death a great teacher, not only is it a great evil, number three, death's timing is uncertain. Look with me at verse 11 and 12 of chapter nine. He says, again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor to the wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. He's saying, listen, every, there's, not every, there's not a set rule for how you live life. Verse 12, moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. He's saying, look at me, Solomon, I, I have a question. How, how long do I have before I die? And Solomon says, listen, birds don't know when they're going to fly into a net. Neither do fish intentionally swim into a net, nor do you know when you are going to die. People don't intentionally pursue cancer, nor do they intentionally get T-boned at a busy intersection. Death is certain, but we tend to live like the only thing in life that is certain is uncertain because we pretend we pick death's timing. Seems like he has an older brother or a younger brother in the book of James. He says, you don't know what your life will look like tomorrow. You can plan the next 30 years, or maybe or maybe you'll go to the gas station to, to, to grab a bag of ice, and you'll never make it home. I listened to sports radio in the morning as I head to the gym, and I was recently listening to Colin Cowherd a couple weeks ago. If you're not a sports person, I forgive you, but I, uh, I want you to listen to what was being discussed Colin was commentating on the passing of Dwayne Haskins. Uh, he was a standout, record-shattering quarterback at Ohio State University who is now looking to continue his career on the Pittsburgh Steelers. Haskins had died the day before, not as an old man, but at the age of 24. How did he die? He was hit by a dump truck and pronounced dead on the scene. The sports commentators were discussing the tragedy of the man who died so young, and the words they used to talk about it were especially interesting to me in light of my study of Ecclesiastes. They said, it's such a tragedy he died so young. He had his whole life in front of him. This is a normal thing to say, right? 
when people die young because we pretend that everyone lives to a certain age. But Solomon says, and the Bible says, you don't think like that. Don't you understand, young man, young woman, person in their 60s or 70s, you're not promised another minute. You don't have your whole life in front of you. I love the Lakers. Don mentioned it. Kobe can beat the Celtics, but he couldn't anticipate his own death. This isn't my attempt at a pithy soundbite. It's the punch in the gut from reality that the scripture provides. You don't get to pick death's timing. We need to remember that the next meal we eat could be our last. You need to understand that the word of God bids us to think this way. So the question is, right, man, death is a great teacher. It's better to walk in the graveyard than it is to go to a party. It is better than the house of birth because coffins preach the strongest sermons. It is an evil. It's a curse. One day we're all going there. And yet the timing of it is uncertain. I don't know when I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die, but I don't know when. So my life is sandwiched between two realities, death certainty and the timing of it. It's the uncertainty. How do I live in the middle? My life is a gift from God. It's on loan. One day he'll take it back. Psalm 90, he will return man to the dust. And you have been allotted every single second you will live. And not one second longer. Your life is a gift from God. And so the question is, how do I live my fleeting, fragile, and unpredictable life in the present? Well, the answer to that question is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. And it's worthy of a few sermons, not a few minutes. But in our remaining time, I want to look at the four responses or four of the responses that Solomon gives throughout the remainder of the book on how we live our short life well. The first two that he gives are dependent upon the latter two. So number one, I want to look with you at nine seven, chapter 9, verse 7. Solomon is building a case here. He says, man, if this is true, I'm dying. I don't know when I'm dying. How do I live? The answer that you're going to see from the scripture is likely surprising. He says then in verse 7, go, then eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in shield where you are going. Number one, how do we live? Solomon says, live to the max. I love the first verb there. If this is true, go. What does this mean? He's basically saying, seize the day, enjoy life. This is not what you thought God would say, is it? He's saying, have you ever thought that God has given you life for it to be enjoyed? And in light of death certainty, and you don't even know how long you have, he says, seize the day, go and get after it. Maybe your idea of God that he's up in heaven and he's monitoring everything with cameras and, you know, and microphones and he's ready to tase anybody that enjoys life. But Psalm says, don't you understand the God that you have? He's the giver of good gifts and he's the giver of life and he has given you life that you might enjoy it. And he says here in verse seven that the way that you do that, at least initially as an example, is with good friends and good food at a table because that's how we prepare for heaven. Psalm says, you want to live deeply in your short life? Dinner alone isn't the way. Nothing wrong with hot pockets. 
Actually, there's a lot wrong with them. They're disgusting. <laughs> the psalm says, prepare a feast. Eat food with your friends and your family. Put down your phones. This is God's gift to you. Then he says this. In verse 8, let your clothes be white all the time. It's just a symbol of joy and righteousness in the Old Testament. And then he says, enjoy life with the woman whom you have all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. He's going to say, listen, if you're married, one of the main elements in your life that God has given you to enjoy is your spouse. The New Testament says you're to live with your spouse in an understanding way. But God also wants you to know you're not just supposed to live with her in an understanding way as if you put up with your wife or put up with your husband. One of God's gifts to you is to enjoy them. And he says, this is a worthy labor in all of your toil which you have labored under the sun, meaning that there is no good thing in life that doesn't require hard work, especially relationships. So if you want to live well in your, in your few days, you do it with people around the table, especially your spouse. We aren't just God's stewards, is what Solomon's saying. We are God's children. And as God's children, we are to live wisely and fully. He used the example of this when I was teaching in our Bible study, when my dad, when I was a kid, when he gave me a basketball, it's not just that he wanted me to observe it and thank him. What does a dad want as a giver of a gift? He wants me to go outside and what? Dribble, shoot, yell Kobe as they launch a fadeaway. What a father wants is to see the gifts that he has given and extended, enjoyed and employed. When a mom, you know, Katie's mom, Bevo, she, she buys me clothes for Christmas, and she's just so kind and generous. What's the first thing a mom does? It's like hardwired within your DNA when you get someone a piece of clothing. You say, try it on. You don't want them to hold it up. You want them to what? Try it on. Why? Because people that extend gifts want to see the gifts employed and enjoyed. They want you to see you hanging out with the basketball, dribbling it under your legs as you sit on a bench, dribbling it to school, whatever it might be, because that's how fathers are. And Solomon was saying, listen, you don't understand the God of the Bible if you think he's up in heaven with a taser ready to beat you every time you enjoy life. No, he is a father who extended the gift of life to you. It's not just his son. He extended to you the air that you breathe, the ocean, the mountains, the hills, everything there. Everything is an extension of God's kindness. He could have just given us some sort of food to sustain us, but he gives us variety and fruit and smoothies and acai bowls. And Solomon says, don't you understand this? God is the giver of gifts. He's a good father. And as children, you're not just supposed to go, ah, thanks, you're supposed to enjoy them. And this is how God is. And in verse 11, he says, live life to the max, whatever, ten, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Solomon is saying this, live life to the hilt. Jim Elliott once said this in his journal, and I loved it. There's a couple applications to this. First of all, he's saying you're going to die. So if you're going to work 40 hours a week, work hard. Never have to be the guy that has to be prodded into initiative. Get after it. There's no such thing as an obedient, lazy person. It's an oxymoron biblically. In a world that caters to lazy people, Solomon says, do it with all your might and do it for the glory of God. Colossians 3, 17 and 23 are gonna say the same exact thing. Whatever you do, do it with all of your might. Jesus says in Matthew 25, be a steward and you can't possibly steward the gift of life if you're a lazy person. But he's not only saying that we need to work hard, 
Solomon is saying, whatever you do, do it with all your might. He's not just saying work hard. He's saying live hard. In Andy Wilson's book, Death by Living, he chronicles his own experience on how we live life in light of the reality provided by Ecclesiastes. The subtitle of the book is Life is Meant to be Spent. And it sounds maybe even unchristian, but this is what Solomon is getting at. I wrote down a list. If life is short, if I know I'm going to die, and God is the giver of good gifts, for me this means go hike the John Muir Trail, take Katie to Norway, learn Spanish, go whale watching, swim with whales, preach the gospel, plan and execute a block party. I mean, seriously, bring those back. Make neighborhoods fun again. Go to the beach, learn to sail, make a new meal, make new friends, have my neighbors over for dinner. Seriously, get to know your neighbors. Plant a garden, get a dog, convince other people to sell their cats. Kidding. Improve a guitar, piano, adopt a kid, study hard, mend relationships, deepen relationships, serve in the church, disciple young dudes, get after it. This is the word of God. Life is meant to be spent. So Solomon says, live hard, live to the max. Secondly, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. I'll be brief on these remaining ones. He says to live joyfully, Ecclesiastes 11, 7. Here's his culminating thoughts, and I'm just summarizing part of the themes of this book. So I don't know when you'll be back in it again. He says in 11, 7 through 9, the light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Okay, Solomon is saying, if you, if you know God and you believe in him, that should produce a celebration in life. The invisible God, I love this. One old commentator says, the invisible God is made visible by his joyful children. We are not just trying to get life over with. And somewhere along the lines of looking at the news and being all Debbie Downers about the way, you know, where America's going, I think many Christians have thought that discernment means that they now live a life of doom and gloom. Biblically speaking, the Christian should make every single person around them go, man, I've never seen anybody that lives with this sort of gratitude and thrill that you have, even after the most mundane things. Not to drink deeply from the well of all that God has extended to us joyfully, the Bible says, is sin. The first sin in the garden, we often say, is what? was the first sin? Pride, right? We say it's the root of all sin, which is true. But I think more than that, it was a failure to rejoice in the gifts that God had extended to his children. Kidner says, this was the nerve the serpent had touched in Eden to make even paradise appear as an insult because a failure to enjoy the gifts that God has commanded is the plant where bitterness and ingratitude grows. And for the Christian of all the people on the face of the earth, there ought to be a reason to have joy. But I want to look at this real quick. He says, he says, rejoice. So that's a command. And then he says, yet, end of verse nine, know that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things. 
Now, here's what you probably think he's saying. He's saying, hey, have a good time, son, but know that there's a curfew coming. If you're not home by 11, that's how it sounds, right? Yet know that God will bring you into judgment. And so we think that he's trying to temper our, our tendencies and he's not giving us license to wanton sin and abandonment. So he's saying, hey, enjoy life, follow the impulses of your heart. Yet no, you're gonna get a spanking from God if you go too far. That's how it sounds, but that's not what Solomon is saying. What Solomon is saying is that God will bring into judgment your failure to live joyfully under the sun. Did you know that? That when you get to heaven, you're going to give an account for how you stewarded the gift of life. God commands you to live joyfully in his commandments. I think it's Margaret Clarkson says, God's commandments are his enablings. And Jones who says, enjoyment of life is not only permitted, it is a command. It's not only an opportunity, it is a divine imperative. This means that a failure to live gratefully and joyfully under the sun in light of our certain death and uncertain timing of it is a failure to obey God. For it is precisely in enjoying the gift of life that we actually evidence the goodness of God that we claim theologically. We say, man, isn't this amazing that God is the giver of all good gifts and he's given us this to enjoy? Even Don was talking about yesterday. Man, I love being here. I love to hang out at the beach with my kids. All of those things for a believer should be an extension of God's kindness to us, amen? And so the way that we respond to that is in a dying world, we go, man, I don't know how many days left I have on this earth. I'm just so thankful that God has extended this to me. It is invigorating to me. Maybe you're asking the question then as we close, two quick things. How can we live joyfully? And how can we live to the max in a world of such evil and brokenness? How can I do this? in a way where my enjoyment of life actually honors God? Well, two things, and these are the first two things that are dependent upon these. Number three, we trust in God's providence. Ecclesiastes 9.1, for I have taken all this to heart and explained that the righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred, anything that awaits him. Solomon gives us this answer, listen. He says, death is certain, its timing is uncertain, so we can enjoy life in the present because every single event, circumstance, tragedy, trial, and triumph is in the hand of God. And he is the divine orchestrator of all of the events. And this trust in providence, meaning that God's not just in control, he's actually orchestrating all things to his perfect plan. This trust in providence doesn't just provide the believer with comfort in a broken world. Do you know what it also provides? an exceptional amount of vigor. God's providence enables me in a world crippled by fear and paranoia to live to the hilt. He is absolutely in control and all of my life and all of this world is in the hand of God. And the hand of God is not just an expression of God's power and control, and it's an expression of his care and concern. They're powerful, yet soft and caring hands. He's not just a divine control freak. He is a loving father. And as a father who guides and protects his children, he wants you to know all of life is in the hand of God. And you're in the hand of God. Solomon says, this is the truth you can anchor your life in. In a world of unrivaled pain, grief, joy, and prosperity, every single thing in your life is in the hand of God. He rules and he reigns. 
When bad news strikes, when fears arise, when wars abound, the believer's confidence is in this. Every single thing in my life is in the hand of God. I love these words from C.S. Lewis. He says that the first two words out of the Christian's mouth when we get to heaven is of course. Because things will make sense then that don't make sense now. I love that. Of course. But in the meantime, we can trust that God is sovereign. He holds all things in his hand. So we can ask ourselves this question, do you trust in God's providence? Scripture says that you are liberated to live wisely, to steward your time and go and enjoy the gift of life. Life is a gift from God. So enjoy that gift by living to the hilt. But not only are we to trust in the providence of God, fourth and finally, we are to live in the fear of God, chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 13 Solomon is building everything towards this final point. And he says the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every single person. What is the fear of the Lord? He'll say in Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And John Bunyan would later on say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and him that lacked the beginning have neither the middle or the end. It's the first rung of the ladder in the Christian life is to fear God. And yet many people don't understand what this means. Well, to fear the Lord is to be in awe of God as a result of a meditation upon the character of God who is not only your creator, but is also your father. It is the worship of God from a heart that is blown away by the one who forms and fashions planets is the same one who forms and fashions you in your mother's womb. He says this in Ecclesiastes 7, you don't even understand, you don't know the ways of God. He knit you together, and yet this is the God who upholds the universe It is the childlike admiration of a father, a father who you long to see smile upon your life because he has granted you all good things in this life and he has given you the most necessary thing in life in his son, Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus as your savior, there's another type of fear. It's the fear that one day you will stand before him in judgment and all of your life will be taken into account before a holy God who sees everything. And Hebrews 4 says, everything will be uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who sees everything. But the child of God doesn't fear God in this way. And Martin Luther used to distinguish between servile and filial fear, meaning that servile fear is the fear of a man before his torturers in a chamber. He's waiting to be punished. But the filial fear fear of a child of God is the one who looks up at his father, a little kid, and longs to just be right with his father, who longs to see his father smile upon his life. To worship God means that you absolutely submit every single moment to his glory. And then you might be going, well, how can I do that? How can I eat Chipotle to the glory of God? And Solomon says, by enjoying the meal and attributing the giver of that meal to God and giving thanks to God. And he's saying, man, God, you are the giver of all good gifts. Ultimately, the fear of the Lord means to mean what we sing. Have you ever, I grew up singing the song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Shouldst What? Die for me. The fear of the Lord means that you actually mean those words. It means that you go, amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Is this true? Is this true? And in chapter 8, I love this. Just look there real quick because I want you to see this with your eyes. In verse 13 of chapter 8, he says, But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, 
because he does not fear God. And then in verse 12, he says, it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. I mean, that those who fear God, they don't have a privatized faith. They live in every single thing that they enjoy and every single tragedy in their life. They can go, man, I have been thankful for the giver of this gift and I'm also entrusting myself to the hand of God, even in the circumstances and events I don't understand because all of my life is in the hand of God. The gospel is what ultimately enables us to live, yes, as a farmer, soldier, runner, boxer, Paul will save, but the gospel is also what enables us to look at the word of God and live as a son and wife and sister and grandma who enjoys life because everything they see that's good in life is an extension of their father's kindness and love to them. And this type of enjoyment in life fuels a greater fear in the Lord. Do you want to grow in your fear of the Lord? Then you need to enjoy life deeply and then express your enjoyment with gratitude to God who is the giver of gifts because to fear God means to worship God. And the more you see his gifts, the more you're compelled to worship. And only the Christian who has no fear of death can live joyfully, vigorously, and enthusiastically in this life because death is absolutely certain. This is the main theme of Ecclesiastes. And for me, I'm trying to cram a lot in. But I just want to tell you, man, it's just been so invigorating for me to read the Bible and go, man, I think what part of this means is for me to enjoy my wife means no phones at the table. Let's go on a vacation. Let, let, let me, let's have our neighbors over. And let me be a steward of the, the life that God has extended to me. He's not the enemy of enjoyment. He's the author of it. And if you doubt this for a minute, read Psalm 104, which I'll close with this. It says that God makes hills to have grass on those hills so that the grass feeds the cattle so that the cattle can provide meat for the sons of man who like it. Do you understand what that means? It means God makes grass to feed cattle because he, lo- he knows dudes love steak. And if you've missed that and who you think God is, you've missed who he is as father. Let me pray. God, we love you and we're so thankful for your son. We're thankful for your word because it's calibrating and it teaches us about who you are. God, you are the giver of life and one day we will meet you at the end. And Lord, part of living a life where we can hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, because Lord, I want that. Part of that is living in such a way where we view our life as a loan from God, where one day you will take it back. And living on loan means we're good stewards. As we enjoy life, we trust in the providence of God. We fear God. And that fear and trust in your providence enables and employs our enjoyment and our joy. We love you, Lord, and we're thankful for your word, thankful for this church. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen.